Uh, as we come to this uh, passage before us in Matthew 25, I do appreciate very much the musicians. They lift our praise up each Lord's Day to heights of which we otherwise would not attain. Amen? Amen. They really lift our soul, and I very much am thankful for the gifts that God has given, and, and even beyond that, for the service that God's people use those gifts to edify His body. And that is, in part, what the focus of our time is about together this morning as we turn our attention to this last and climactic part of this Olivet Discourse, beginning at verse 31 of Matthew 25. Now hear the word of the Lord. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all His holy angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty. And you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in, or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these my brethren, you did it to me. Then he will also say to those on his left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. Thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not take me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked and sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And then he will answer them, saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment but the righteous into eternal life. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the entirety of the scriptures that reveal to us those things that have been, those things that are, and those things that will be. We are thankful that through the eyes of faith and the scriptures, illuminated and discerned by the Holy Spirit, you have given us the ability to see and know the truth and the reality that exists even beyond what our eyes can see or that which our hands can feel. We are thankful for this sober warning of what is coming to all of us, and yet we ask that you would work it to be a great delight and a joy and anticipation and and in all of your people. We pray if there's one here today that does not yet know you as Lord and Savior and has turn their life to trust you, that this would be a sobering time of reflection and true repentance, of seeking the Lord, 
And we pray that your spirit would send forth your word today with great power and fruitfulness in all of our lives, stirring us up and removing our apathy and and taking away the waste of our lives, that we would not look back with regret, but that we would be serving you, delaying our gratification until that glorious day when we meet our Lord. And so stir us up and energize us, we pray, toward the end for which these scriptures are written. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. This morning I've entitled the message, Delightfully Surprised and Dreadfully Stunned. Or the way I put it in the bulletin there, surprised in delight and stunned with dread. There have been two experiences in my life that stand out that help capture some of the emotion of that title. In the beginning of eighth grade, I changed my instrument from trumpet to French horn and began learning the French horn in the band. This was in a school that no one really knew how to play French horn, and no one knew much about the French horn, and I rented what was called a single horn of that day, and no one really knew if that single horn was E-flat or F, and it determines what the fingerings are going to be, depending on what tuning it is in. No one knew the fingerings. And I didn't know what fingerings to, 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 to know to play this horn. And, and I really stumbled through the entire year of playing this horn um, not really well at all. On top of the correct fingering, which was very confusing at the time and I really did not know, was the fact that the French horn is the most difficult uh, brass instrument to play due to its very tight harmonics of the instrument and a very small mouthpiece. It takes a lot of finesse and sensitivity uh, to make the, the instrument play, and when it does play, to hit the right notes. Half the time, you don't know what note's going to come out when you begin to play it. There's not many people that can appreciate a good horn player much more than I do, because I know how difficult the instrument is to play, even more so to even master it. And the fact that we actually have in our congregation uh, a number of French horn players, or at least several, who not only can play this horn, but can actually play it well, is a very rare thing. Well, that entire year went by. I struggled with that instrument all the way through the end of that year, and I still couldn't play it very well. I still didn't even really know what uh, notes, and on the horn you can cheat a little bit because of those harmonics, but I never did figure out the fingering. At the end of the year, there's always this concert that we have to, where parents and friends come, and, and mostly parents, because uh, we weren't a very good band. And so they came, and, and that was the time in which the director gave out a couple of awards. And, and there was one award that uh, the, the band director gave out, which was the most outstanding band member. And as she was introducing the award and began to describe the intendant recipient, we all began to whisper, because we knew it was going to go to that first trumpet player, who was an incredible player for his age, and had just advanced beyond what any of us had really uh, considered in that particular year. But when she called the name, she called my name. 
I just sat there. I, I was shocked. Um, and in fact, I've never been so shocked in all my life. I just I didn't know what to do. I, I, it made no sense whatsoever to me. And honestly, to this day, I still do not understand what was in the band director's mind uh, to give me that award. I, I honestly don't know. I knew, and she knew, and all the band knew that it wasn't because I was the best player in the band. Now, my mom and dad were in the audience on that particular evening, and that was a really proud parent moment. And I'm still, I'm still pretty befuddled about it all, uh, but they really thought I did something. And, of course, that made me feel really good, and I think we all love the feeling that when our parents are really pleased with us. And so the emotions, uh, which were many in that night, that were somewhat captured, were deeply imprinted in the experience of my life. And there was surprise, there was joy, there was delight, uh, there was kind of a, a sense of, wow, are you really sure you've got the right person? And there was just all of that kind of in this package. And that experience, in a very small way, captures the spirit and emotions of one part of the passage that I just read. The second experience I had was a second year in college. I was taking what we would call engineering weed-out courses. And I'm looking at a few of the engineers, and they'll probably recognize what I'm talking about here. The class was dynamics. And I was an electrical engineering student, or hoped to be. I had not yet been accepted into the engineering school, and these weed-out courses were given to do just that. There was a number of of applicants, and they could only take a certain percentage of those applicants, and this is one of those ways they could determine who was fit to move on or, or not. And so it was a pretty uh, rigorous uh, course, uh, and the dynamics class had three tests, and only three tests, and your entire grade fell on how well you did on those three tests. The first test I did really well on. And there was a, you know, kind of a sigh of relief. I mean, I did really well on that first test. But the problem was there was a lot of other students that did really well on that first test, too. Much to the chagrin of the instructor, who made it very clear that that would never happen again. Time for the second test rolled around, and I remember that we give about, they give about two and a half hours for uh, this test. The test had three problems on it one on each of the three pages that were given to me. It would take all of that page in the back to write out, to set up the problem, and then to work through all of the, the math to conclude on the answer. So I get the test, and I look at the first problem on the test, and I fumbled around with it for a little bit, trying to set this problem up and trying to understand it. And I wrestled with that problem for 10 minutes. I did not even know how to set the problem up. Now, I had done all of the problems at the end of every chapter and had set up every problem and worked through everything in the textbook in preparation for this test. And I look, and this problem was foreign. With a little bit of panic, I switched over to the next page, thought I was going to get some of the, the things there, and that, that problem looked even stranger 
And I didn't spend much time on it. I spent right to the third one. I needed to at least get one problem set up so I could get my moral and my confidence back up, which had been absolutely shattered by that point. And I remember when I went to the third and last remaining problem, I was just stunned. I remember several thoughts that went through my mind, including, am I in the right test? The problems were foreign. They were put in such a way that it was the right class, the right test, but it wasn't just a mere copy from the textbook ones I've been working on. I had to think about how all of these things are to play into this new uh, form of a kind of a problem that we were not expecting. And so as I had struggled with these problems, I remember going from, you know, you get partial credit, so you want to do what you can. I, I went from this problem to that problem to that problem, and I was just trying to do something, just something. I had no idea, and pretty soon the panic just, just took over. And so for two and a half hours, I flipped from problem to problem, attempting anything I possibly could. When time had expired, I had to turn my test in. I felt this sense of dread. I felt that my engineering career and everything I'd worked so hard for was completely ruined. I got the test back, and I somehow scrambled out a 48 out of 100 on that test. So my A strong plus went down to a C minus instantaneously. The emotions captured that night were panic, stunned, bewildered, a sense of dread and ruin, foreignness. I wasn't expecting this. Uh, I felt like everything I'd been pursuing was washed away, and I kind of lost a sense of purpose if I didn't make it, and fear just took hold of me. And that emotional panic that stunned me that night and, and that I was going through in the aftermath captured a little bit of the emotions and the spirit of the other part of this passage. Delightfully surprised and dreadfully stunned describes the spirit and the emotions of the coming judgment day when we all appear before Christ and give an account for our lives and all of our works. And that's what I want us to think about for the next few minutes. There is a coming day when Christ returns, that everyone, both the righteous and the wicked, will all be resurrected in their bodies and will appear before the Lord, the King, in all of His glory, to give an account for what they have done in their bodily lives while they lived here on the earth. It's a great day, the great day of the Lord, Judgment Day. Everyone will experience this, and no one can get out of this. Everyone will give an account for his life and the deeds that he's done while living in the body here. And it's one of the most sobering realities in all of the Bible. There are two immutable things that are true, that God has informed us, and that it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. And no one is going to get out of those two immutable, unchangeable things.
as you meditate on the soberness of that, it should stir up some emotion. I confess that some of these emotions as I meditate on having to give an account before the Lord on that day, they're not all, all good. The amount of regret that I have already accumulated in the time that I have wasted in my life, time that I cannot recover, gives me a certain sadness that knowing one day I will give an account for my life and I could have done more with my life and the time than I have to show for it. And I hate the feeling of regret. Those that know me well, you know that I'm slow to make decisions. I calculate and I think about things because when I make a decision, I do not like to look back with regret. I can make decisions firm. I can make them, and even if I've made a wrong decision, which I make many wrong decisions, but I don't like the feeling of regret. This passage is the final conclusion of the three parables that the Lord had, has given us in the immediate and preceding context. There is a day when Jesus is coming back and he will sit on a glorious throne and he will judge every person for what they have done in their lives, whether those things are good or bad. And this is one of those messages that has some, some tension in it. It does have some emotion to it. And our Lord intends to use this tension in our spirits to help us, to make us aware, to wake us up, to give us a sober mind, to have us to have a watchful spirit. Because he knows our tendency to slip into apathy, complacency, procrastination, or just meaningless waste of the life that he has so graciously given to us and saved us. And the passage in this message is intended to stir us up and to, to stir some emotions up, to motivate us to a consistent daily faithfulness to our Lord and King. If we notice in verses 32 through 34, that judgment will include an assembling together of all the nations before him, and then there will be two distinct separate groups into which each and everybody will be separated. The one thing we need to address is what does he mean by these nations that will come before him as he summons and gathers the nations before him? The word nations there is the word ethnos from which we get the term ethnic or ethnicity. We sometimes think of ethnic groups of people, and these ethnic groups of people often have uh, an identity socially within a, a group or a nation in which they are identified. Some people have in mind that Jesus will group the societal groups of people together and he will judge them as a whole group. But the passage is very clear later on that judgment will be on an individual basis. I will give an account for myself. I will give an account for how 
I was a husband to my wife, a parent to my children, and in my case, a shepherd to God's people. Three times in the book of Revelation, the term nation is used in a very similar sense in how it is used here. One of those examples in Revelation 5.9 says, And they sang a new song, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. The idea of gathering the nations here is referring to the call of all the peoples before him to judge him. And it is one of the particulars in this particular passage of Matthew 24 and 25, which distinguishes what is going on here differently from what we had looked at at the beginning part of Matthew 24, where Jesus was specifically referring to a particular judgment upon the Jews in their rejection of him. Now he is calling all of the peoples from all of the nations, Jew and Gentile alike, before him to give an account. And that's the reference. The second thing that we need to note is that everyone is going to be divided into two different categories. These are people who work alongside each other in their daily employments and their activities, even people within the same household in some cases. And these are going, there's only two categories, and everybody will either be put in one or the other. The sheep, will be put on the right hand of the king, and the goats will be put on his left hand. And those are the only two categories we have. And then he's going to say, he's going to turn and look at the sheep on his right hand, and he's going to say these delightful and surprising words. He will say, Come, you blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you, from the foundation of the world. Now there's a couple of points here we need to note before we scoot on. The kingdom of God that this entire epistle has been expounding in the presence of the coming of the king. And that's who Jesus is. He is the king. He is the great long-for Messiah. And this epistle or this gospel of, of Matthew is highlighting that kingdom and the king. But that kingdom of God, of which Matthew has been expounding throughout this entirety of his gospel, he says it's a kingdom that has been prepared for you. And he has done this preparation of this kingdom for you from before the foundation of the world. And that is an astounding statement. Those parables about the kingdom, which likened um, to a wedding festival, and there were actually a couple of different parables that likened it this way, but there was a king, and he, and he was preparing a great feast for his son who was about to be married, and there was going to be this great banquet and this great festival that's going on, and the kingdom of God is like that. But, but those who were invited into the wedding festival, it was for that very thing people for which all of this was prepared. All of the big festivity of God, the big festival of God, the great jubilee, the great marriage supper of the Lamb, it has been prepared for you. 
When? Before the foundation of the world. See, you're an integral part of this celebration. You, you, you have been chosen by God in Christ before the foundation of the world to bring forth the praise of the glory of His grace and to bring this into the great celebration with God at the great banquet feast. That's why wedding feasts and receptions are to be joyous occasions and, and festive and, and, and with, with great ongoing kinds of joy. He wants you to know all of these things that I've been talking about of the kingdom and the coming of the king has been prepared for you. <laughs> that, that's an amazing statement. That is an amazing statement. He says to the sheep on his right hand, he says three things. Come. He invites us. To come. Come to Him. To, to, to approach Him. And he, then he says, secondly, you blessed of my Father. Now, inherit the kingdom. That's a tremendous privilege and a grace. This is the time of receiving the inheritance. Right now we have the seal of the Spirit of God, which is the guarantee that we will receive in full uh, capacity this great inheritance, by the way, the likes of which you and I cannot even imagine or think of at this point. And the way that we are to live life right now is expected to live it with a delayed gratification for that day. To try to sum up all of life and to live it right now to its fullest. I, I know a lot of parents feel like they have neglected the, their, their children if they do not feel that their children have experienced all of the, 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 the experiences that a child can possibly experience. And they feel like being a good parent is to be able to have their kids in, in soccer and music lessons. And they run around in a frenzy, feeling like I've got to give my child his childhood. And that's a completely wrong view of it. You need to be thinking, train up your children to be an adult who can then continue to delay their gratification to the end of their lives because they've been living the entirety of it for Jesus. And that will all be worth it. There'll be plenty of time to play soccer and do all of those things that you thought were really important. And if you just wait, if you just wait, it'll be worth it. We live today in the light of that day. And the day of judgment for believers will be a glorious and happy day. We don't have to fear that time. It's a time, really, of anticipation. If you truly are in Christ and you've got your, your life in Him because you've trusted Him, you've given yourself to Him, it's a day for which we long for. It's ever been to a theme park and you've got your family and, you know, if you're, if you're like me, you're going to get there before the gates open, you're going to park the car and all of this stuff so you can 
you want to maximize your time. And you get there and you're waiting for the gates to open with anticipation of what you're going to experience when you get there, right? Um, Now, the older I get, the less I do that. But when I was young, (laughs) I wanted the full capacity. I I wanted all my money's worth for that one day ticket, right? So you get there and you're waiting for the gates to open with this anticipation and this excitement of what's on the other side. And that's the idea. That's the idea. We've got a kingdom that is awaiting for us of which we do not yet have our full inheritance, but we are to be preparing for that and delaying that gratification and serving the Lord with all of our heart and loving Him as He has bid us to do with this anticipation that the greatest part of life is still yet to come. And it will last for all of eternity. This day is not a day of dread for Christians. It's a day when all of the wrongs and injustices will be made right, when all of those miscommunications will be cleared up, when all of those things that you have lamented and you have regretted in your life will be cleansed and washed and and, and all of the wood, hay, and stubble burned up. And and you're going to be surprised, really surprised, at how much glory of the, the silver and the gold and those things which have endured the fire do make it through. And that is the delightful surprise that comes that he says in verse 35 through 40. He begins to explain to them that, for you have taken care of me, Jesus says. You have encouraged me, Jesus says. You have fed me when I was hungry, and you gave me drink when I was thirsty, and you came to visit me in prison when I was lonely. And discouraged and sick, you came and visited me. And then we're like, what? That's the idea. There's a surprise. Lord, when do we do that? And he says, when you did it to the least of these, my brethren, did it to me. I think there's something about that surprise that's telling Now notice that the things that Jesus points out here were a surprise, but they were a blessed surprise. He stated that they did something for him that they did not recognize the fact, and so they asked him the question. It was surprising to them. But the works on which they were judged, and which was a surprise to them, are not the cause of their spiritual condition, but they are the evidence of it. These works which they did occur out of the nature of who they were as kingdom people, as Christians. In fact, they were not meriting God's favor. In fact, it was very far from their thinking that they could ever merit God's favor because these Works were not even considered meritorious. Why? Because they weren't even thinking about these were even works to be judged for. It was a surprise to them. And why it was a surprise is because they were acting out of the nature of which Christ has made them new, and they were just living in such a way that, that He was living in them and through them. 
The way that they live as Christians, the way you and I live as Christians, the way that we live according to the gospel, according to the truth, becomes a second nature to us. And the more you live it, the more it becomes second nature. There's some things that we do here at Heritage. We're far from perfect. We still have many sins. But there's things that we just kind of do that we take for granted anymore because it's a part of the new creature that we are in Christ. It's not to pat ourselves on the back at all. It's, it's to give glory to God for what great things He's doing. And we're going to be surprised with some of that. And that's why it was a surprise to him. So many of the things that he was calling to their attention at Judgment Day, they had forgotten about. They had completely forgotten about it. They weren't doing it to try to earn his favor or to merit that. They, they simply didn't even consider that. And while they had forgotten about it, Jesus did not. Not a single time. Not a single occasion, not a single act of kindness did our Lord ever forget. You did, but he didn't. His acts of kindness that nobody recognized, that no one patted you on the back for, that you didn't get any recognition for, he remembers. Hebrews 6.10 says, For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love which you have shown toward His name in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. He is not unjust to forget even the smallest act of kindness. When you do something to one of God's people, God takes it as you have done it to Him. Notice how different this passage is from the Matthew 7 passage that Jesus gave back in that Sermon on the Mount when he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Have we not cast out demons in your name? Have we not done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, who, you who practice lawlessness. Now, in that scenario, they are remembering their works, and they are putting them up before God as the basis for which they should be accepted. That is a quite contrast with what he's given us in Matthew 25, that so many of the good works of which we're really going to be judged for are works that we've forgotten. The basis of our acceptance before God is not our works, but our relationship to knowing Jesus. And that knowledge will yield itself of a life of good works, not that you will ever appeal to on Judgment Day, but rather you will in large part have forgotten about, but Jesus hadn't. And you're going to be delightfully surprised. Now, the third notable truth here is that there is an inseparable relationship between Jesus and his people. I 
and that inseparable relationship between Jesus and his brothers and sisters is such that if you do something to one of the brothers and sisters of Jesus, he receives it as you've done it to him personally. Now, the category of works for which we will be judged according to this passage has to do with our treatment of Jesus' brothers and sisters. Now, I don't know about you, but that's not the kind of thinking that I would have naturally thought about. Right? I, I would be thinking in terms of breaking the law, murder, uh, stealing, adultery, falsehood. I would be thinking in those terms, and that's how most people think. I don't think it would ever occur to me that exposure of their spiritual condition was expressed by giving a cup of cold water to the least of these of his brothers or sisters, and then Jesus receives that as doing it to him. The smallest acts of kindness or withholding those acts from those that he calls his brethren will be those matters about which we will be judged. It's a little different than the way most people think. Some of the things mentioned here are those that at the risk of their own well-being, they cared for the brethren. Those acts of kindness evidenced their salvation. They did not earn it. Now that will be a delightful surprise. What? Who, who me? Seriously? What? My name? <laughs> but then there's going to be a dreadful Stun. There's going to be those on his left hand, identified as the goats here, and he's going to say to them, depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Those are the most horrifying words anyone will ever hear for all of eternity. And many people will hear those words. In fact, it's a sobering reality, is it not? When we're here gathered together in the name of Jesus, and we can anticipate that great, great day, there's a sobering reality that we have family members that we know of that are not saved. We have neighbors that are not saved. We know people by name. There may be a few here that generally aren't saved. The Lord knows. But is that not part of our objective in living on this earth, even delaying our gratification to later, is, is to keep people from hearing those words? Right? Does it bother you that someone you know will hear, depart from me, you cursed into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels? That should bother us. Three things he says to those on his left. First of all, he says, depart from me. Depart from me. Or in Matthew 7's version, I never knew you. This is, this is the Lord Jesus sitting on his, on his throne, rejecting for all of eternity, never with any recourse, those who were not his. The second thing he tells them is you are cursed. 
See, this is exactly the opposite. Come, you blessed. Depart, you cursed. In fact, those are the only two attributes that we see categorizing these two groups of people, the blessed, the cursed. There's no middle ground. There's no neutral ground. There's no in-between. There's no halfways. There's, it's either the blessed or the cursed. And what does he next say? He says, now, what is their inheritance? It wasn't a kingdom that was prepared for them. It was actually an inheritance that they received of that which was prepared for the devil and the angels. And he says, now their inheritance is everlasting fire, eternal damnation. The kingdom was prepared for a blessed people of God. The everlasting fire was prepared for the devil and the angels. And now these who hear this judgment will spend the rest of eternity there. Those who hear these dreadful words are actually going to argue with Jesus about it. Now, just think about it for a moment. Can you imagine standing before the creator of the world and before the judge who has the power to condemn you to hell, and you're going to take up and argue with this? This is the disposition and the attitude of those who do not know Jesus They're disrespectful and they're demanding. They are self-righteous in their own eyes. They can tout their own works. They do not think they're deserving of God's curse. And they're going to question Him. When do we not? It's quite unlike the blessed who did not earn their place in God's kingdom by their good works. The blessed don't do that. We, we do not earn our way in God's kingdom by our good works. But you know what? The cursed do earn their way right into the everlasting judgment. It is their righteous place. It would be our righteous place too, save for the grace of God. Their works are those that deserve the punishment that they have earned for themselves, and they will go on to have their reward. And again, the category of works here, the same, same category, it's that for which they will be judged has to do with how they treated Jesus' people. Because how they treated Jesus' people is how they respond to Jesus Himself. And that demonstrates their relationship with Jesus. How they treat Jesus as people is how they treat Jesus. These are those who have not done those acts of kindness to Jesus and his people, but rather they have distanced themselves from it. It will not provide for the brothers and sisters of Jesus. In fact, it's a deliberate act of not doing this, of withholding themselves from it. It's not just overlooking a matter. It's not just being unaware and, and not as sensitive, but it is an intentional withholding themselves from the blessing and act of kindness toward Jesus' people. Saul of Tarsus went to... Uh, was, was, was on the road to Damascus, and Jesus confronted him. And he stops him in his tracks. And it says that Saul was going to persecute the Christians. And Jesus says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So inseparable did Jesus 
put himself in with union with his bride, that to do one to one is to do one to the other, and to do something to his people is to do it to him, whether it be giving a cup of cold water or deliberately withholding that. So what we do in this life and the way we live here in the body is that for which we will be judged. Now, you've only got a certain amount of time for this. After your death, it's sealed. There's no more recourse. You're going to be judged for what you did in this life in the body. And then you're going to be resurrected in the body, and you're going to be judged and then awarded according to what you did, whether good or bad, in this life. And it will be largely based on how we treated each other the brothers and sisters in the Lord. So how you spend your time serving the brethren, the little acts of kindness, the self-sacrifice by delaying gratification or something that you really wanted to do in order to reach out to your brother, is that which Jesus notes and he remembers. Taking the time for somebody else that you could have been doing something for yourself or not, is what Jesus will bring back on that day. And in that day, there's going to be many people that are going to be so delightfully surprised. And there will be many that will be dreadfully stunned. Those are going to be the only two categories. To be in the sheepfold, to give your life trusting Christ and loving Him and serving Him, which is expressed in this context of the church and to God's people. This will evidence itself in the way that you relate to God's people. And the way you relate or not is a reflection upon how you relate to the Lord Jesus Christ. And folks, let me encourage you. Let us... All not waste our time or our life. Our time is our life. And we have very little of it remaining. It will be gone in just a breath. But let's today be faithful, redeeming the time, for the days are evil. Live for that glorious day. Seek those things which are above. Because in just a few more years, in just a few more sunsets, in just a few more Sabbaths, all the opportunity will then be finished and sealed. So make good use of the remainder of your days to serve Jesus so that you will not regret it. And if you serve Jesus, you will not regret it. You will be delightfully surprised. You will not be shocked in trying to figure out what does this problem mean? What is this problem? Let me just redeem what I can. That will not be your case when you meet the Lord if you're Jesus's. Stand at those gates. Anticipate the day of opening, but be busy about your life today knowing that that day yet awaits for all of his people. Let's pray. Our Father, as we conclude this Olivet Discourse that our Lord gave just before he was betrayed and crucified upon the cross for our sins, dying a horrible death that we might live. 
having left the glories of heaven to be humbled upon this earth, that we might receive the glories of heaven for all of eternity. That our lives are hidden together in Him and united together with Him so that you love us like you love Him and and you treat us like you treat Him. What a great hope that is for us, knowing that in this life we will have tribulations and we will enter the kingdom of God through many tribulations. We're thankful for that great and glorious day that yet awaits all of your people, and we long for it. We pray even now, Lord Jesus, come quickly, come quickly. We ask that the Spirit of God would stir us up and drive out the procrastination and drive out the apathy and drive out the wasted time and those things that waste our time from serving the Lord Jesus and to love your people and to serve them and to to be a ministry upon this earth while we still have our breath. Lord, keep us from deep regrets and how we've wasted so much of our time. May we now not look back, but may we look forward, pressing on toward the great mark and the prize which is before us, Christ himself. And may we be faithful each day, consistently so, in living the lives that you have called us to, using and employing the gifts that you have given to us for the edification of the body. And may our love increase all the more for you and increase all the more for your people, for these two are not separate. Lord, teach us with your Spirit how to apply these truths to our lives, that you would bring forth a harvest of spiritual fruit from us, at heritage, and from our individual lives and our families. Flourish us in the gospel and with your grace. Root out from us our idols that keep us from our heart love for our God the way it should be. And Lord, we ask that you would be glorified in taking our lives and using them for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.